praise God, we're going through 1 Timothy. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you could please go there. We're actually at a very controversial verse, one of the most attacked verses in the New Testament by believers attacking it, trying to get it to say something it doesn't say or not say something they're afraid it might say. It breaks my heart that they're afraid it might say what it, I believe it clearly says because <laughs> it's such good news. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, You'll remember in verse 1, Paul said, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of who? All men. Amen? Do you believe that? You should do that? Of course, the uh, word there, when it means strictly men, it would be like we speak of mankind, uh, man, male and female. Male and female made he them in, the, in his image, it says. Uh, verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority... So you're praying for all men. Don't forget to conclude who? Kings and all who are in authority. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires who? Amen. All men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you believe that? Believe God truly wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth because Many Christians don't believe that. And there are many ways that this particular passage is diluted. Some take verse 4 and they overstate it. They claim that since God wills that all will be saved and come to knowledge of truth, therefore they teach universalism. So those verses taken in two directions and it's heavily misused by two different camps. Uh, universalism teaches that everybody will be saved in the end. That there's no broad road that leads to destruction that most people are on, contrary to what Jesus taught, where they'll go into uh, separation from God forever and ever, which Jesus taught. So they contradict that. They teach the heresy of universalism. Everybody will be saved in the end. We did a whole video called on, on Rob Bell, a whole video on the submerging church, which got a lot of traction. A lot of people got that video. It's still pretty popular out there. But we also, within that, uh, we have a section on Rob Bell. And his idea that basically everybody will escape hell eventually. Uh, anybody that's willing ultimately, which would probably be everybody, right? Uh, he teaches a form of universalism. Uh, we did a whole video expose as well on the shack. And the shack and then the movie based on the shack uh, shows an uh, angry, hateful, wicked man who beats his son silly because he's drunk, die in a, a, a you know, terrible state of rebellion against God. And, and, but then his son sees him in heaven or in the heavenly kingdom at the end of the movie. And, and it's exactly what we were, we were warning people about. And he was denying in certain interviews that he was teaching universalism. Then it came out. Yeah, that's exactly what he was teaching. Uh, these are false teachings. Because God wills all would be saved or desires or wants all to be saved. And to come to knowledge of truth doesn't mean everybody will turn from their rebellion. Amen. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation, chapter 9 and in chapter 16, we're told of the world at large that they refuse to repent, to give God glory, and turn from their idolatry, their sexual th sins, their thefts, their, their murders, their, their uh, pharmacia, their drugs and sorcery. Uh, so, and that's the state the world's in right now. There's no indication that the world's all turning to Christ that you've seen either. Have, isn't that reality? It matches reality. It's what Jesus taught. So it's a lie to teach that everybody's going to just, you know, turn to Jesus. 
and that everybody is saved. That's one thing that's totally contrary to Scripture. The other way the Scripture is taken out of context is actually in the opposite direction, and that is by our, our, our Calvinistic uh, brothers and sisters whom we love. We count our Calvinist brothers and sisters, those who are truly trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior as Christians. And it's an in-house debate, but it's an important thing to talk about because we happen to be on a passage that uh, Calvinists twist in all kinds of different ways to say something different than it actually says. Or those who actually affirm what it says then say, well, really, but really there's another secret will and it really doesn't mean that God really wants all to be saved ultimately uh, in a salvific way. And then there's all these caveats and <laughs> so forth that are, uh, you know, put into the uh, text. And what's happening with a lot of people is you, whether it's universalists or the Calvinists, they're, they're guilty of eisegesis. Exegesis is extracting from the text what God's word says. Uh, ex, from, it's from, you know, ek, which is to come out from. It means to get out from the text, what God says. Eisegesis is from ice, and that means to basically, eisegesis is to read into the text something that you want to see there. And a lot of people do it uh, with all kinds of different texts in Scripture. And this text has been mutilated more than just about any text in the New Testament. And we're going verse by verse through Scripture, so we want to make sure that our interpretation is sound, right? Because uh, the universalist will come to this text and he has universalist sunglasses on where he wants to believe everybody's going to be saved. So, of course, oh, God wills all be saved, come to all the truth. That'll fit in my theology, you know, because I want to see everybody saved and, and believe that everybody will be saved, but they don't look at the context. And our Calvinistic brothers and sisters that put John Calvin's sunglasses on, they don't want text to teach that God truly, truly, genuinely wants all to be saved. And that is the end of it. That's his desire. That there's much more to it, of course, but they want to believe, uh, well, that God doesn't want all to be saved, or they want to believe that he wants all to be saved, but he has a secret will where he wants to damn most people. So there's a contradiction here, and you must believe in this contradiction, which is really just a discrepancy that doesn't make any sense right now, but we'll understand in heaven. It gets really confusing. And that's what happens when you start going to the text of Scripture and start reading your theology into it. It gets really, really confusing. But if you just accept what this text says, that God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, you should be more than happy. In fact, praise God, the title of my message is, Does God Truly Desire to Save You? Does God truly desire to save you? That's a question worth asking, amen? That's an answer worth having uh, for sure. I mean... I don't think I've asked the question a number of times through the years. Is there any more important question than where you spend eternity that you could ask? No. That's why we're here midweek. Amen? That's why we love Jesus. That's why we're serious about our faith. Uh, so uh, the question I ask is, does God truly desire to save you? Because if you come from a Calvinistic standpoint, you really can't know if God truly wants to save you and that you're one of the chosen ones. Because Calvin himself taught that God deludes certain people and gives them what he called evanescent grace, a fake grace, to make them think they're saved for a while. And then withdraws that grace in the purpose of blinding them and then damning them even more. Okay? Yeah, that's not, that's not the biblical God, but that's what Calvin taught. And 
So as a Calvinist, you ha- and you follow Calvin's teachings, you don't really know if you've got that evidence in grace or not. You don't know if God really wants, if you're one of the ones he truly wants to save, that he truly died for, because uh, uh, Calvinists are limitarians, not libertarians, but limitarians. And limitarians from limit, they limit what Jesus did on the cross, and he only did it for the elect. Not all Calvinists. There are plenty of Calvinists, by the way, called, you know, moderate Calvinists that believe, oh, of course, Jesus died for everyone, you know. They just believe that he still wants to damn most people with an unconditional eternal decree. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a whole another thing to get into. But uh, can you really tell people, brothers and sisters, that Jesus loves them? Can you really, with meaning, and that he loves them, I mean, in the sense where he cares about them truly and he truly wants to save them, can you tell somebody God loves them? Could you? Well, many Calvinists believe you can't say God loves you to somebody because he doesn't love many people. Many other Calvinists can, will say, well, yeah, you can say God loves you, but you can't say Jesus died for you. Because you can say God loves them, but he doesn't love them in the sense of wanting to save them ultimately based on his unconditional decree. So he didn't die for them, but he loves them in a way where he wants them to be comfortable before he sends them to hell to burn forever. Strange kind of love, huh? Now, by the way, 1 John 4, 8, B, and 9 says this, God is love. And how does God show his love according to 1 John 4, 8, and 9? God is love. By this, the love of God is, was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Amen? That's how we know God loves us because Jesus what? Because God sent his son to what? To die for us. Amen? That's how we know what love is. So can I really tell someone God loves them if I believe Jesus didn't die for them? Not in any meaningful way, uh, the way in which we would use the word love. So we see he wants us, first of all, to pray for everyone. Amen? Pray for all men, verse 2. Including kings and those who are in authority. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now, looking at the context of this passage, I think it's a slam dunk of what Paul's saying here. And I noticed uh, when, and I've got a, you know, several commentaries on this, and some are very helpful, but not one commentary, and I was kind of disappointed, went back to the, old, went back to the uh, first chapter and looked at Paul's thought just before this, where Paul is saying in chapter one, before he gets to this, and he's coming against the teachings of the false teachers, many of them perhaps Judaizers, it looks like, misusing the law, and in chapter 1, he talks about how, uh, and I think this is important, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, meaning this is important, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am what? Foremost of all, chief, the worst of all the sinners, Paul says. Yet not for this, yet for this reason I found mercy. Why did you find mercy, Paul? Why did God save you as the worst sinner? The guy that was having Christians killed, that was breathing, breathing hateful, angry threats toward the church, the one who was actually persecuting Christ. Why would he save you? Jesus Christ might, that he might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for what? Eternal life. He's saying he saved me, the worst sinner, as an example that anybody could be saved. Whoever would believe would be able to be saved. They would have to wonder if Jesus loved them or not. They would have to wonder if Jesus died for them or not. Why? 
Because it's a trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save who? Sinners. Are you a sinner? Yes. Therefore, Jesus what? Came in the world to save you, right? The just for the unjust. He came to die for the ungodly. Several passages like that. 1 John 2, 2. He's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen? What a beautiful verse that is. Now, he's telling us what God's desire is, you know, or what God's heart is, I should say, and what his desire is in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. After he says to pray for all men, and then he lists kings and, and, and those who are in authority, then he says in verse 4, verse 3 and 4, this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, who? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I fight on this hill. You know why? Because one of Satan's greatest attacks in blinding believers from coming to Christ is to get them to believe that God doesn't love them enough to save them. Because guess what? They feel unworthy. And guess what? We are all unworthy. Amen? That's true. They feel so guilty. And guess what? It's true we're all so guilty. Amen? They feel like they, they know deep down they deserve the wrath of God. And it's true. Amen? So it's hard to get the non-believer to get his brain around the idea that, guess what? God loved him, so loved the world that he gave him the only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, it sounds good, but man, to actually accept that and believe that he personally loves them, it's so hard. Even Job, who was the most upright man of his day, blameless Beyond all others, in Job chapter 1, the first verse, guess what? In chapter 7 of the book of Job, he asked the Lord why he won't forgive him his sins. Why won't you forgive my sins? But it was a lie. Actually, Job had already been forgiven, right? He was under the grace of God. God was basically boasting about Job before Satan that he holds fast integrity. But Job was blinded by who? Satan. Satan, wanted to, Satan was attacking him and got him to believe he couldn't be forgiven. That God's grace didn't apply to him for some reason. And guess what? So many people fall under that delusion. I've dealt with people right here in this fellowship. Really neat people. Had a Calvinist come here for a couple years. Great guy, but was convinced he was damned and that Jesus didn't die for him. One of the sweetest guys I've ever met. I love this guy. Not sure where he's at in this moment, spiritually, as far as that belief goes, but it just would break my heart. He's schooled heavily in Calvinism. And I've seen many people's faith shipwrecked because they don't believe that Jesus' offer for their salvation is really a sincere offer because they can't know if Jesus truly died for them. Now, people already struggle with this subjectively, but when you put a theology behind what somebody's already struggling with, then you're putting gas on the fire. If you start teaching, well, yeah, Jesus probably did die for you because he only died for a handful of people compared to the mass he died for the elect only, which is not what the scriptures teach. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there's one God, verse five, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Guess what? Jesus represents God and he is God of the flesh, but he became a man, amen? Also to represent man. He died for us. He's a propitiation, it says in 1 John 2, 2, for our sins, that's the elect. If you're a believer, you're one of the elect. You belong to Christ, he's the elect one. 
If you belong to Jesus, you're part of the elect because he's the elect, he's chosen. Whoever comes to Christ is part of the elect. He died not only for our sins, he propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Who's the whole world in 1 John? A few chapters later, chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we, believers, the elect, are of God, but the whole world is under the power of who? The evil one. That's who Jesus died for. All the people are under the power of the evil one. Just do a word study on the word world, cosmos, in 1 John. You'll see over and over and over again, it refers to the lost world and the lost world system. Now, it's interesting that verse 6 makes it even stronger. Who gave himself what? As a ransom for all. Who did he give himself a ransom for? Verse 6. For all. The testimony given at the proper time. So follow Paul's thought here. Follow his thinking. How glorious this is. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save who? Sinners. Okay, all sinners. Guess what Paul says? Even me, the chief of sinners. Why, Paul? So you guys, any would come to would know that they'd be accepted too. Really, Paul? Yeah, pray for all men. Really? Even wicked, wicked people? Yeah, kings and those who are in authority like King Nero, the last person you think about praying about. Why? For God wills that all will be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Really? Yeah, because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Really? Well, guess what? I still don't believe it. And I'll find a theology to hang my hat on that says, no, it can't be everyone. Can't mean all men without exception. And that's sad. And by the way, I can honestly say to you over and over again, my heart to the point of tears at times breaks for Calvinists that are under, because I've seen the bondage, you know, of people that believe that Jesus didn't die for them and he doesn't love them. And because I believe that's one of Satan's greatest attacks in the church today, and it has been for years, Especially when I get a text like this, I'm going to deal with it and look at the context. Because as you're driving down the road, and if you hear R.C. Sproul on this verse, he'll say it really doesn't mean that he desires all people to be saved. Or if you hear John MacArthur on it, he'll say it does mean he desires all people to be saved. But he also has a secret will where he damns, wants to damn a lot of people, so he doesn't really want all people to be saved. Confusing. But that's not right. Now, First of all, regarding your universalism, not Calvin's universalism, those who misuse this verse to say, oh yeah, you know, uh, since God wills that all people will be saved, therefore everyone will be saved. If God wills something, that's going to happen. And uh, does everything happen that God wills would happen? You know, I counsel a lot of Christians through the years and, and first, and, and uh, what is it? <laughs> In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. Has every single Christian grown in sanctification and abstained from sexual immorality? Yes or no? No. There are scriptures where it says, like in the English Standard Version, okay, the elect sovereign version or the English standard, ESV. ESV is a Calvinistic translation. It's pretty good, actually. It's off in some areas, though. But uh, it says of them sacrificing their children to Baal. That this never came into my mind. 
says that in pretty much every translation. But I like the ESV here. It says, I never decreed it. But they're doing it. And it breaks God's heart. Over and over again, there's scriptures that show that what do you think sin is? It's a departure from the will of God. What do you think the cross is all about? God rectifying our sin problem. Amen? Now, there's various ways that this verse is, well, by the way, just with regard to universalism, universalism is such a lie, and I already mentioned a little bit because Jesus said in a straight gate for broad way leads to destruction, and many people go that way, but straight is a gate, or narrow is a gate, and straight is the way it leads to life, and few are those who find it, amen? And then that mentioned Revelation, the world at large will not repent in the end, Revelation 9, Revelation 16. Also, right here in verse 4, or verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Amen. And by the way, 1 John chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Go ahead and look there. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of who? All men, especially of who? Believers. How is Jesus the Savior of all men, but especially of believers? He's the Savior of all men, First John, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse 29, the Gospel of John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He provides salvation for everyone. It's, it, it's available to everyone. Whosoever will may come, amen? amen? So in that sense, he's a Savior, it says, of all men. But it says, especially of who? First John 4, 10, believers. This is good against universalism and against Calvinism. Because it shows his provision is for who? Everyone. He's the Savior of all men, but especially or namely of those who what? Believe. You must put your trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Now, I want to look at various ways that are used, and there are many, to try to get around the beauty of verse 4. The ways where the enemy would like to rob you of your assurance that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus wills, that God wills your salvation. Because that's under attack right now. And by the way, this isn't a fringe theology, guys. This is many of the most popular teachers that you listen to on the radio hold a ver some version of getting around 1 Timothy 2.4, unfortunately. And because I know if you're a strong Christian, you probably listen to Christian teaching, not only just reading, but you hear guys. Well, I want to show you the, well, by the way, the, what, the view I'm showing you right now is the view of the early church, the first few centuries of Christian history. In fact, it was ha, the view of Christendom for about 1,500 years, but the view wasn't even challenged as to who God willed to be saved in the first few centuries, except by the Gnostics which influenced the Calvinist. Now, it's interesting here. One of the arguments to get around verse 4, and let's read verse 4 again. 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm not spending a lot of time debunking universalism. I don't think anybody here struggles with the temptation toward universalism. I've never seen in our fellowship. But the assault will come more toward the limitarian view who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, that's pretty clear, huh? 
I don't think anyone here has a translation that's going to say it much different than what I just read. And if we just take it at face value, it means that God desires that all men be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. If we take it in the context, Paul was talking about even himself, the chief of sinners, even praying for guys like Nero, amen, for God desires all to be saved. And Christ gave himself a ransom for all. So that one of you that seeks to get around what the text says here is that the word all right there means many, not all. It doesn't really mean all. Pontos, it doesn't, the Greek word really, it, it, even though it says all, sometimes the word all can mean many. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone without exception. Now that's true. You can, you know, if I say the whole town was there last night, do I mean literally the whole town? Probably not. But the onus is on you to prove that, amen? Otherwise, we should take it more literally, right? If there's a reason to not take it literally, and you see it in the text, in the context, then we could agree with you. But if there's not a good reason to say it means all people or men, meaning men and women, without exception, then we should take it at face value and take it, more, take it literally, amen? And I've already shown you the context. It starts with Paul being the chief of sinners, and I'm not going to go through everything I keep going through that I've gone through a couple times now, that from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and even chapter 4, verse 10, you know, he's a savior of all men, especially those who believe. You put all those texts together, it's really clear. But this view is that, hey, well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, listen to this, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Catch that? Right there, Jesus said, now Paul says he gave himself a ransom for who? All, right? Now we have all kinds of verses where Jesus talks about, you know, for instance, you know, he didn't come to, uh, you know, he came to seek and save that which was lost, right? For God so loved the world, Jesus said they gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, the world, right? The world that rejects him a few verses later, that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. We have a lot of alls from Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, so I'll give you rest and so forth. But here Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom for many, okay? But what's interesting here is when you hear the word many, some of the Calvinists want to contrast that with all. But as many commentators point out, that the many is really often in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, contrasted with few, right? You understand? It's not all versus many, it's few versus many, which would be all in the, in the context of reading all the scriptures on who Jesus died for. Now you have no, you don't have one scripture anywhere you could ever find that Jesus only died for the elect, okay? We offered, I think, what, $10,000 to anybody who could show us a, a verse years ago that teaches that the rapture was before the tribulation. Nobody was able to collect. Well, we had that same offer if you could show me a verse that says Jesus only died for the elect. No Calvinist would even try to attempt that. Show a verse that, he, that states he only died for the elect. Because it not say that. But I could show you all kinds of scriptures that say that he died for everyone. Right? But it's interesting. Here when it says many, it's very interesting. Because guess who, who has some of the best and strongest words against the idea that many here doesn't mean all. John Calvin himself, his namesake. Listen to what John Calvin said. The word many is often as good as equivalent to all. And indeed, our Lord Jesus was offered to all the world. He says, he says many meaning all. Listen to this. 
Calvin on this verse. He, he says many, meaning all, as in Romans 5.15. It is, of course, certain that not all enjoy the fruits of Christ's death, but this happens because of their unbelief. Their unbelief hinders them. That's that. He's saying many refers to everyone because it's in contrast to few. And many means everyone or all. And there are people that don't enjoy Christ's salvation because their unbelief, what? Hinders them. In other words, if they didn't, if they, if they didn't have unbelief, they could be saved. Now I was like, wait a minute, that sounds more like what you teach than what Calvin teaches. Well, that's because Calvin's all over the place. In his systematic theology, he's pretty buttoned up on you know, unconditional election, that you don't have a choice of your salvation ultimately, you know, when it comes to God's decree, that is. And, uh, but when you get to his commentaries and where he comments verse by verse through so many scriptures, it destroys a lot of his systematic theology. And that's what, that's because the Bible has, is very rude against systematic theologies. Because <laughs> it doesn't comport to them. And systematic theologies ought to change and comport with the entirety of scripture. So it's interesting because Calvin says, now I thought this was interesting, Calvin says, he says many, I'm sorry, he says many meaning all. Catch that? He says many meaning all, as in Romans 5.15. Uh, it is, of course, certain that not all enjoy the fruits of Christ's death, but this happens because their unbelief hinders them. Now, this is interesting because he's referencing Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Why this is important is because Paul uses the terms all and many synonymously together. Because when he's referring to many, he's referring to all. When he's referring to all, he's referring to many. And he's talking about uh, Adam's death. And when Adam died, through Adam's death, who dies? All. Is all a few people or many people, Jim? Many. It's many people. <laughs> so all could be many. But all can't be few. <laughs> so go now to Romans chapter 5. Are you with me, guys? Romans chapter 5. And when you get there... Well, you know, Romans 3.23, all have what? Sin and come short of the glory of God, right? Does that refer to all or just some? All, right? Look at Romans 5.15. Or just go to 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin, that's one man, that's the many as contrast with one man, by the way, right? Just, uh, therefore, just as one, uh, through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to who? All men, because all sinned. Because all sinned. Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the world, many died, right? Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Romans 5, 18 and 19. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to who? All men. All men. Even so, uh, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification for or to who? All men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the what? Many. many. The all are called many there. <laughs> See that? Uh, we're made sinners. All have sinned, right? Said that earlier. And he said, uh, many were made sinners here. Even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Wow, that, isn't that interesting? So all people are born with a sinful nature. Romans seven eleven: when they become aware of the law, they die spiritually. All people 
are, die, are, are able to be made alive in Christ because he provided his salvation for all. And then when we put our faith in Christ, just as when, when they reject God's law, when they hit the age of accountability, they die. When one accepts Christ, they're able to be saved. Amen? Because Christ died for all. So this whole idea that, uh, well, maybe the word, uh, you know, all there just means many. And the many means few. It's kind of like they jump, you know, because they know that the scriptures teach Jesus that only a few would go through that narrow gate. But the reality is that Jesus died for all. But not all people have faith. Not all come to him. And even John Calvin himself acknowledged, right, that, uh, now we're talking about, I'm sorry, when I'm talking about the all here in Romans, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm talking about verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom for all. But they read that back into verse 4, saying all really doesn't mean all. It means maybe many, which isn't all. And therefore, he doesn't will that all would be saved because Jesus really didn't die for all. When the reality is, we're seeing that even when the scriptures speak of the word many with regard to Christ's death, even John Calvin admitted that it referred to who? All. Are you with me? Okay, another view that our Calvinist brothers and sisters use is that, well, it refers to all, but it refers to all believers. That's who it's talking about, all believers. Now this is, I'm telling you, each move they give is what we call eisegesis. Reading into the text because you put your John Calvin sunglasses on and you know, you want to see what you want to see and when it upsets your theological apple cart, you have to twist the scripture to match what you believe and you shouldn't do that, but too many people do that. And by the way, why would you even want to do that? Why would you want to be a limitarian? Why do you want to limit what Jesus did for everybody? That just breaks my heart, you know? But the problem with this idea is that, you know, he wills that all there be saved, and he's talking about believers, is that's a, what we call in theology, not just theology, it's English, it's just a, a thing that people do, not in do philosophy, they do it in just math, they do it in whatever. That's what we call a tautology, okay? A tautology, T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y, a tautology is basically a needless repetition, Okay, it's the idea of using a, a, a phrase and then saying the same thing all over again, maybe a little bit different way. In other words, it's like a, a needless repetition. How would this reduce this to a tautology? It would reduce it to a tautology because he's saying that God wills that all would be saved. Well, really, he wills that all believers would be saved and come to what? Belief or knowledge of the truth. Wait, what does that mean? That's like saying a guy to a guy that runs by my house. Hey, you should try, you should try running. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm already running, you know? Uh, because it's ridiculous to say, well, all really just means believers there. Well, no, Paul says he wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He's talking about people that aren't believers that need to come to knowledge of the truth. Believers are already in the truth. By the way, the term knowledge of the truth is used four times, it occurs four times in the pastoral epistles. It appears right here in 1 Timothy 2.4. It appears in 2 Timothy 2.25 where it talks about certain apostates could be recovered from Satan, Paul hopes, that they could come again and says they could come to the knowledge of the truth. They departed from the truth. So that's why I use the term again there because in chapter one, the early verses, they've departed from the truth and shipwrecked their faith. Uh, and in 370 says, that's talking about the end times, how terrible times will come, memory will lovers, self-coverage, boasters, proudless, femurs, disputed parents, unthankful, and on, and on, and on. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, right? 
And then it talks about ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It refers to salvation. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, another pastoral epistle, being in the knowledge of truth refers to those who are believers. They have the knowledge of the truth. But Paul wants people to what? Be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's definitely not to believers. That's an easy one to dispel. Now, it's interesting. I've been quoting Calvin against Calvinism. But here's Augustine, who really is the brain behind what became Calvinism. He was, he was four centuries too late, by the way. You know, our country hasn't been a nation for just much longer than, you know, 200 years. So that's a long time. It was about 400 years later where after the church had begun, thereabouts, that Augustine had this nor- these novel v- views that God predestined certain people to salvation but passed over other people. And, but Augustine says of this view that it's, you know, be- of, you know, not, you know, it's just basically praying for believers or the faithful. He says, quote, what is, first of all, because he says, first of all, prayer should be made for, you know, uh, and so forth in First Timothy chapter 2. It means in the daily service and the initiated know how this is done every day, both in the evening and the morning, how we offer prayers for the whole world, for kings and all that are in authority. But someone perhaps will say, he meant not for all men. Isn't that interesting? This is weird because this is where these doctrines come from, but I'm quoting where these guys even contradict what's been, their doctrines that have been systemized through scholasticism. But, Cal, but Augustine says, but someone will perhaps will say he meant not for all men, but for all the faithful. How then does he speak of kings? For kings were not then worshipers of God. Of course not. Then King Nero was a wicked king and there were no kings that were Christians, that's for sure. He says, for then there were no, kings were not worshipers of God, for there was a long succession of ungodly princes. What's Augustine doing? He's pointing out that he can't be speaking of what? Praying for other, you know, faithful believers. So we know that the term doesn't just simply mean many. We know that it doesn't mean just pray for believers. When he says, you know, that he, that God, you know, our Savior desires that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's exactly what he means. That's why you can know God's heart is for you. You can know that the Lord loves you. You can know that he gave himself a ransom for you. You can know and act on that and live your life free in Christ, rejoicing in that. Another view, though, says that, well, the word saved there, another way Calvinist approaches, well, maybe the word saved there doesn't really mean salvation. He's not talking about being saved. Because God can't want all people to be saved. Well, uh, there's a real problem with that view, by the way. Because the whole context is salvation. Paul talked about being saved just before that. And then in verse 5, right? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's salvific language. The very next verse, verse 6, right? Jesus who what? Gave himself as a ransom for who? All. That's talking about salvation. And I've seen these arguments, by the way, okay? I've seen these arguments. I've seen them on the internet and, you know, people debating, you know, uh, and with people coming up with all kinds of views, trying to wiggle out of this verse. Quite interesting. Another view, because that's really easy to refute that. Look at the context. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are dealing with salvation for sure. Uh, and some will say, well, it means just to be saved. I mean, God wants you to just be preserved and, you know, or, you know, not, not theologically, spiritually. Well, no, it's not, not what it's saying there. Now, this is an interesting one. 
is that God really is saying uh, he wants all to be saved and come to knowledge of truth in the context that it just hurts his heart that a lot of people be lost. But he doesn't truly want to save them. And they'll refer to Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 that says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. See, so God doesn't have pleasure in the death of the wicked, but still he's damned them and he doesn't want all to be saved. He's just expressing his hurt that a lot, you know, that, that he's pre, you know, predetermined not to save a lot of people. Well, there's a problem with that because you can't just quote the negative part of that verse that God is not, that God has no pleasure in death of the wicked. There's the next part of that verse in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, when he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It certainly says that, but what else does it say right after that? But rather that what? The wicked turn from his way. Amen. And what? Live. That's his will. He just isn't having grief because they're going to perish. He really wants them to live. And then he says, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? In other words, guess what? It's not my heart that you perish. And I mentioned just recently, not in a message, I don't think I ever really dove into that text in a message the way I probably ought to have. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, in Ezekiel chapter 33, a lot of those people feel that they're predetermined by God to be damned, that they have no hope, that God's predetermined to pass them by. Because you see, they've gone into Babylonian exile because of this, their sins. And a lot of young people are there growing up in this exile, and their parents were in rebellion. And they figured that they're being judged because of the sins of their parents, and they're doomed because of what their parents have done. And they're using a proverb among them. The, they're saying the children's teeth are set on edge because of the sins of their parents. In other words, kids were walking around saying, because of my parents' sins, this is how I am, and, and God's judging me because of what my parents did. And God says, no longer use this proverb among you. May it shall not be found in your mouth when you're saying that the children's teeth are set on edge because of the sins of their parents. Because they were saying, the way of the Lord is not right. And the Lord says, the, your way is the way that's not right. You know why he says that? Because they had an idea that God did not want to save them, that they were doomed and they were being judged and predetermined for damnation because of the sins of their parents. And the Lord says, the soul that sins will die. The father and the children belong to me, he says. If we went back there and read the text, the, the fathers, the sons, they all belong to me. And he says, the soul that sins will die. He says, if one is walking righteously and they turn from their righteous walk and live a wicked life, their righteous walk will be forgotten and they'll die in their sins. If a man lives wickedly, but he repents and turns to me and does what's right, then his past, he tells us, will be forgiven. It'll be accepted. And that's in that context where he says, don't use that proverb. It's your way that's not right, where he says the truth about who I am. In fact, that's why it's important to understand when he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. He's swearing an oath, saying my word trumps all your theology, all your predeterminism. As I live, declares the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked man turns from his way and lives. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? Well, of Israel, you can't die because you can blame it on the sins of your parents. You can only die because you can have to admit it's your own choice. It wasn't my heart. And if you go into eternity, uh, into eternal darkness and hell, it's a result of your choice, not something I wanted you to do. 
Are you with me? So this idea that it's just showing God having sadness over people that perish, but he really still wants to damn them. No, untrue. Another way our brothers and sisters who are Calvinists try to get out of this, and this is probably the most popular way. Uh, John Piper, John MacArthur, others who have some really good teaching in areas that we'd agree with, you know, I mean, we disagree with MacArthur on replacement theology, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, and soteriology, salvation, you know, and uh, eschatology, we're not pre-trib, neither was early church. So I have a lot of disagreement with a lot of things he said, or that the believers can take the mark, or that people could take the mark of the beast and still be saved in the end. There's a lot of things I disagree with, okay? That, but when he's right on, it's <laughs> kind of sounds funny, and I'm driving down the road and he's right on, he's talking about the sufficiency of scripture and so forth, I'm like, amen, praise the Lord. But I have a real struggle when it comes to a lot of things he's, he's teaching. Same, same with Piper, okay? So a lot of times when I'm like, praise God, he's saying some really, really good things. Other times it's like, ouch, you know? And one of his ideas is that there's two wills. And that's not just his idea. That was Calvin's teaching. And that's John MacArthur's teaching. Is that God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. They'll both affirm that verse. They'll even say it with force and with passion. But then they'll say, but then again. There's his secret will. We secretly predestined only a certain few compared to the majority that's going to go to hell to eternal salvation. And he passes by the rest, even though he could save them. It's for his glory that he chooses not to because he created them to burn them forever so he could be glorified and show how strong he is, how powerful he is, and, how, and be glorified through that. And it's almost as though God's glory is worshipped rather than God himself sometimes. And that God's character of being pure love. And 1 John 4, 8, God is love. How do we know what that love is, John? Because God sent his son to die for our sins. That's how we know what love is. So if we're going to affirm biblical love and really understand it, really share it with people, we have to be able to share what Jesus did for them. Otherwise, it's an empty promise. Could I truly go up to someone and say, God loves you? But if I'm, if I'm a Calvinist, I'm being honest. If I said, God loves you, but most likely he made you to burn forever to show you how strong he is, show the world how strong he is. That would be more like a monster, you know? In fact, John Wesley said, Calvinism makes God worse than the devil because the devil just simply tries to tempt you to go to hell. But in Calvinism, God predetermines who goes to hell and they ultimately don't have a real choice because if before you existed, before the creation of the world existed, Calvinism teaches that the, the mass the vast amount of humanity was predetermined to go to hell. Some will call it, Calvin taught double predestination. Other Calvinists say, well, no, it's not double. He predestined people to heaven, but he just passes by those who are going to hell when he could save them. Same thing. That's contrary to Jesus' teaching. When Jesus taught us what love is, he taught about the good Samaritan, amen? amen. It was a priest and Levite who passed him by when he was in need and refused to help, amen? That's not Jesus. Jesus said, love your enemies, the Good Samaritan is a picture of Christ. Amen? He didn't pass him by. And what would be worse, passing someone by who's bloody and might die or passing them by and letting them burn forever when you could easily save them, but you don't want to do that because you want to show how powerful you are. That's not biblical. That's not the heart of God. No wonder so many Calvinists have been suicidal through the years and dejected and, and despondent when they think of God's character. So there's this idea... Now, this is important to understand, though. In 1 John 2, 4 and 1 John 
where it says, God wills that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. John MacArthur and John Piper will actually say what we say, that he does will that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And the all there does mean everyone without exception. So they would say that. That's good, amen? But what they give with one hand, they take away with the other. Because then they talk about God has a secret will, though, where he doesn't truly, truly, truly want your salvation. Otherwise, he would have predestined you, but he didn't. In fact, I read from the John MacArthur Study Bible on verse, chapter 2, verse 4. God's decree of election is secret. It says a little further down, how will electing grace and predestined purpose can stand beside his love for the world and his desire that the gospel be preached to all people, still holding them responsible for their own rejection and condemnation is a mystery of the divine mind. In other words, how could God really love all people and say he wants to save them, but have predestined only a few to be saved and just didn't want to save the others in his in his. In his eternal counsel when he gave the decree to only save a few? How does that happen? Oh, well, it's a, it's a mystery in the divine mind. It's a mystery. We don't really know. No, John, I'm sorry. It's an absurd contradiction. You either truly love someone and want to save them or you don't, okay? But, but they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Now, I will say this about John MacArthur and John Piper here. I praise God that they're at least trying to let the text say what the text says. God wills that all will be saved and come to knowledge of truth. Amen? Amen. They're at least affirming the text. That's good. That's further than, say, James White and a lot of Calvinists will go. They'll just try to explain away what the, the text says. They're actually saying the text does say that. But they're saying, but because Calvin said this, they're saying, but there's a secret will. By the way, it's so secret, guys, you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> but there's a secret will whereby he damns most people for his eternal glory. The MacArthur Study Bible goes on to say, God has elected who will believe and, and be saved, and he saved them before the world began. Hmm. Interesting. Does it say he saved you before the world began? Oh, it says we we're electing him before the foundation of the world. That's true. But did you actually exist before the foundation of the world? Yes or no? No. No. The Bible says after, in, first, in Ephesians 1, after it says that, it says after we, you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that's when you were saved. You didn't get saved until in time. But God in his foreknowledge who knows who would believe, for whom he foreknew, he also, and who are the ones he foreknew there? Verse 28, God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, that's those who love him. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He knows who's going to receive him and who's going to reject him. It says, God has elected who will believe and save them before the world began. What mystery we must distinguish between God's will of decree, his eternal purpose, and his will expressed as desire. Desire is not, now this is interesting. Listen to what he says here. This is the crux of his argument because now he must deal with the text. And now he's making the text say less than it does. So he is messing with the text a bit, okay? Listen to what his argument is. Where it says God wills or God desires that all will be saved and come knowledge of truth. John MacArthur says, we must distinguish between God's will of decree, his eternal purpose, and his will expressed as desire. In other words, his decree is that people are damned even though he says he wills to save them. But it's secret. And you just don't know who it is. You get that? 
His decree is that you'd be damned, but he says he wills that he'll be saved you. I know it's a contradiction, or it looks like a contradiction, John would say, but it's a mystery. Then he says, desire. Now listen to this. He's going to deal with the Greek word. And the Greek word in 1 Timothy 2.4, when God wills all to be saved, is thelo. Okay? T-H-E-L-O. T-H-E-L-O. Okay? Rhymes with hello. Thelo. It's from the Greek word, the, the noun thelema. Okay? Thelo. Okay? He's saying that that word where he wills all be saved is a weaker word than bulamai, which is a stronger word for will. So he uses a weaker word, will, weaker word because it's just his will to be all would be saved, but really bulamai has to do with his sovereign decree where he decided that you'd be down forever. So there's two conflicting wills. One is stronger, that's the eternal decree, and the will that all would be saved is really weaker. It's not, he doesn't really, really will you as much as he does the bulamai. Let me keep reading now so you understand I'm not, I'm not making this up. We must distinguish between God's will of decree, his eternal purpose, and his will expressed as desire. Desire is not from bulamai. Desire is not from bulamai, which would be more likely to express God's will of decree, but from thelo, which can refer to God's will of desire. This is precisely the distinction theologians often make between God's secret will, that is Calvinistic theologians, between God's secret will and his revealed will. So he's saying there's two different Greek words for will that he's talking about here. One's bulamai and the other one's thelo. And thelo has to do with his weaker will in this context. And he just, he wills all we say, but it's kind of weak. Doesn't, it's a limp-wristed kind of desire compared to his authoritative decree, which is fixed. Well, if his authoritative decree was fixed and he determined you to go to hell, why would he even whisper that he desired that you be saved if it wasn't a reality? Well, that's a mystery. We won't know until later. Well, John Calvin taught that God decreed all, every wicked thing that takes place on earth, every wicked thing that people do is determined by God. Even James White, a top Calvinist, says when he was asked during a debate, did God predetermine a guy to rape a child? Did he, did he, was that predetermined by God? In other words, could he have done anything otherwise? He goes, yeah, God predetermined it. Said it straight there, right there on, in, during the debate. John Calvin writes, quote, he, meaning God, has plenty of reasons for comfort as he realizes that the devil and all the ungodly are reined in by God so that they cannot conceive, plan, or so that is the devil and wicked people cannot conceive, plan, or carry out any crime unless God allows it and deeds commands it. So God's commanding all the evil things that happen. They are not only in bondage to him, but are forced to serve him. Wicked men cannot break free from the, uh, do, and do exactly what they want. He says men can deliberately do nothing unless he, meaning God, inspire it. Calvin writes, but of all the things which happen, the first cause, the first cause is to be understood to be his will because he so governs the natures created by him as to determine all the counsels and actions of men to the end decreed by him. He says that in, in his book on eternal predestination, concerning eternal predestination, he says the wicked thoughts and actions of men are all predetermined by God. So we're basically a bunch of puppets and all the evil going on is basically God doing it through puppets. That's not biblical. God says again when they're sacrificing their children to Baal, this never came to my mind. I never decreed it. That's why he can punish us and hold us responsible. Amen? Amen. Can you imagine? If, could, now, if, if I had a, you know, 
some kind of robot that I could control and I had that robot go kill 50 people in Simi Valley, three or four every night for, you know, however many nights that took. And I just used that and everybody's like, and they got a picture of this thing. They don't know it's a robot. They, they catch it, it's a robot. And then all of a sudden they realize it's programmed and they realize I'm the one controlling it. Who do you think gets put in prison? The robot or me? Me. I would be the author of all that evil. Oh, but it's a mystery. Well, here's the problem with, with uh, John MacArthur's book, uh, uh, comment, or I know he uses, has a lot of people working with him in his study Bible, so him and his, his team uh, who've built that commentary in the John MacArthur study Bible, here's the problem. He says he uses the word thelo, not bulamai here. So it's God's weaker will. There's a problem. Because in that same comment, listen to what else he says. When God desires all men to be saved, he is being consistent with who he is. A little further down, he says, in the New Testament, Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, listen, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How many of us can say amen to that? Amen. Amen. We agree with that, right? It's in the same comment. But what John doesn't point out, remember, he's saying, his argument on 1 Timothy 2.4, where God wants all to be saved, he wills that all would be saved, he desires all would be saved. Wills, wants, desires. That word is the Greek word what? Fellow. It's not the other Greek word. Do you remember that word? Bulamai, which is stronger, which has more to do with his decree. Well, here's the problem. Try to follow this now. Try to pay attention to this. The Greek word bulamai is used in 2 Peter 3.9 of God willing that none perish. Let me read it to you. Second Peter 3, 9. It states, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing, bulamai, bulamenos, which is from bulamai, not willing for any to perish, for any to, uh, not bulamai, any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Are you with me? Amen. So he says, oh, there's a stronger word used here. You know, our weak word used, Thelo, instead of Bulamai, problem. Because that means, you know, Bulamai speaks of his decree. Well, in 2 Peter 3, 9, Bulamai is used. He doesn't will, Bulamai, that anyone perish, but the outcome repents. And 2 Peter 3, 9 basically says the same thing as 1 Timothy 2, 4. The words are used basically synonymously. By the way, Paul, the apostle, uses the word synonymously. In 1 Corinthians, listen to this, 12, 14, or 12, 11, and 18. Listen to this. In the same context of the same thing, he uses the words interchangeably, I should say. Verse 11, and one of the same spirit operates at all these things, apportioning to each individually as he wills, fellow. Verse 18, and now God sets the members, each one of them in the body according to he, as he's willed, bulamai. What's my point? Is that Paul uses these words interchangeably. I, Howard Marshall, one of the most celebrated New Testament scholars that ever lived in the last, within the last century. I heard Marshall comments on this, on this little uh, thing we're talking about here with these, two, these words. He says, quote, the fact is that while fellow has a wider range of meaning so that it can on occasion, on occasion refer to desires and perhaps expresses more, uh, more the element of personal desire that lies behind the expression of the will. The two verbs, speaking of thelo and bulamai, are essentially synonymous. 
and nothing can be built on the fact that one is used rather than the other, end quote. Unless you're trying to prove a theology, then you're trying to look for anything. But the fact that we have Bulamai in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he desires that none perish, or wills that none perish, is basically checkmate. Now, one last way that our Calvinist brothers and uh, sisters try to get around this, and this is a very, very common way. The way that MacArthur tried to get around it is probably the most common way. But another common way is the way John Calvin himself tried to get around it. Is when it says all men, it really means all kinds of men. All sorts of people. You know, like nurses and doctors, but some nurses, not all nurses. Some doctors, not all doctors. Just all sorts of different kinds of people. You see, <laughs> that's the next way. That's a very, very uh, common way that many Calvinists do try to get around that. In fact, James White uh, paraphrases it this way. Who desires to save all kinds of men, including kings and all those who are in authority. And a little bit later, Christ Jesus, uh, uh, got, uh, who gave himself as a ransom on behalf of all kinds of men. <laughs> so he, he, you know, he died for carpenters and policemen and firemen. But not all policemen, not all firemen, you know. You catch that? It's like, and it's, it's almost laughable, right? Because you know the context. He gave himself a ransom for all. He saved Paul, the chief of sinners, that anybody could come to him. Whoever would come to him would be saved. Now, there's some problems with this. Uh, by the way, it would be really hard to pray. Because, and they do that, he does that based on verse two. Pray for kings and those who are in authority. Oh, look, see, uh, based on verse two, kings and those who are authority, those are certain kinds of people. Kings and those who are in authority. So we should pray for different sorts of people. But the context, again, is Paul's the chief of sinners, amen? And verse one comes before verse two, last time I saw, where it first says, pray for who? All men, amen? And kings and those who are in authority are a subset of all men, Amen. And Paul, being the chief of sinners, represents the worst of men and that anybody who believes could be saved. Amen. Gave himself a ransom for all, desires all to be saved. That's the clear context. By the way, you'd be in a really, how do you pray for, you know, all sorts of people? Okay, kings and those who are in authority. Do I pray for kings? Do I pray for Nero at that time? Because Nero was the butcher, man. He was a, yeah, I pray for him. Or do I say, Lord, I think what you mean here is pray for all kinds of people, so I'm not supposed to pray for Nero here. I'm supposed to pray for elect kings. If there's any elect kings on the earth, I pray for them. You think that's really what he's saying? Yes or no? No, he's not saying all kinds of people, meaning just the, for the elect in certain sorts of people groups. That can't be what he's meaning there, okay? Otherwise, how do you even apply that to your prayer life? Okay, Lord, I don't pray for Biden because that guy, he's certainly not elect, you know? But whatever elect leaders are out there, I pray for them. No, we're not called to pray for them. I'm called to pray even for Joe Biden right now and whoever the next president is. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, I. Howard Marshall, again, that one of the uh, leading New Testament scholar, died a few years back. He says, quote, Thus the limited atonement, that means that Jesus only died for a few, the Calvinistic interpretation. Thus the limited atonement interpretation has to resort to what looks like twisting the text. And he's speaking about this sort, all sorts of people that James White holds to. They have to resort to what looks like twisting the text. And there 
is in any case nothing in the text to suggest this interpretation rather than the literal one. <laughs> in other words, that he did give himself as a ransom for all. He does desire us to pray for all people. Amen? Amen. By the way, I think it's important for you to know why would Paul be emphasizing to pray for everybody? What's the context? We talked about most commentators believe that the reason Paul wrote one of the emphases he's writing in 1 Timothy is because there's false teaching, which we've been checking out as we've gone through chapter one, right? And I point out that a number of scholars believe that the false teaching uh, that Paul's dealing with is Gnostic, okay? Others believe it's Judy, uh, you know, the Judaizers. They got to keep the law, you know? And the law of Moses and so forth. But what's interesting is why is Paul, what is Paul dealing with when he's dealing with this exclusivity? And he's coming against this idea where God only wants to save a few. Because that's what he's militating against. I'm the chief of sinners. God saved me as an example that whoever believes would be saved. Pray for everyone. Amen. God wills that all be saved, come to all the truth. Amen. Even pray for the kings and those in authority, those who you'd otherwise probably overlook. Pray for those guys because God wants all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Why is he emphasizing that? Well, the Gnostics, if the background here is incipient Gnosticism, the Gnostics taught that there was only a special elect group of people that were predetermined to be saved and they had a spark of divinity within them. And it was a small group. And many scholars believe that that's what Paul's coming against. Well, guess what? It would be really strange for Paul to be saying, pray, Jesus died for all, he wills all to be saved, right? Because he's getting away from that teaching that there's a small group of elect Gnostics just because in what really what he wants to pray is an elect group of predetermined Calvinists or those who, you know, are still a predetermined group, you know, this small group. Makes no sense at all. The all is to militate against the idea that he only wants a few to be saved. And that would fit with Judaism too. The Judaizers saying that, guess what, man? You got to keep the law to be saved. And, you know, most people, the Gentiles aren't in because Paul says a few verses later in chapter two that he's apostle of the Gentiles. So what could be happening here too is he's saying Jesus didn't just die for the Jews. He doesn't just want them to be saved, but he wants all to be saved, Jews and Gentiles. Amen. And when you're praying for them, you're not praying for certain Jews and certain Gentiles. You're praying for all men. For he desires all to be saved, he gave himself a ransom for all. Again, the context fits, as I. Howard Marshall said, the literal understanding is the best understanding. But you know who had the best comment I've ever read against this idea that it means all sorts of people and not really to pray for everybody? Just pray for different classes of people? A Calvinist by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who is called by other Calvinists the Prince of Preachers. He was a, he's a favorite preacher among so many Calvinists. And he said, Calvinism is the gospel. Spurgeon said that. Yet he came strongly against the view that John Calvin held and James White holds and many Calvinists. That, that all people doesn't really mean all people. It just means all people in all sorts of different classes or groups. And listen to what Spurgeon said. It's powerful. What then Shall we try to put another meaning into the text than that which is fairly, that it fairly bears? I said Jesus, right? He says, I trow not. You must, most of you, be acquainted with the general method in which our older Calvinistic friends deal with this text. All men, say they, that is some men. As if the Holy Ghost could not have said some men. If he meant some men. All men, say they, 
that is, some of, the, of all sorts of men, as if the Lord could not have said all sorts of men, if he had meant that. The Holy Ghost, by the apostle, has written all men, and unquestionably means all men. I know how to get rid of the force of the alls, according to that critical method, which some time ago was very current. In other words, Calvinists are very adept at getting away from the promises that he wants all to be saved. Uh, by the way, Calvinists are hard on themselves too, can you tell? Okay, and he's a Calvinist. He goes on to write, but I do not see how it can be applied here with due regard to truth. I mean, do you really care about the truth? I was reading just now the exposition of a very able doctor who explains the text so as to explain it away. He applies grammatical gunpowder to it. That's what James White does and explodes it by way of expounding it. I thought when I read his exposition that it would have been a very capable comment upon the text if, uh, 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 if it had been read. Who will not have, now listen to this, it would, it would have great, his, his, his explanation would have had great meaning or great power to it if the text had read this way, quote, who will not have all men to be saved nor come to the knowledge of the truth. Had such been the inspired language, every remark of the learned doctor would have been exactly in keeping. But as it happens to say, who will have all men to be saved, his observations are more than a little out of place. My love of consistency, now check this out. My love of consistency with my own doctrinal views, meaning Calvinism, is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of scripture. In other words, he'd rather be inconsistent and preach that God wills that all will be saved, even though he believes in a secret decree where he wants to damn most people. He'd rather believe, have inconsistency in his theology and still hold to truth and not try to change the scripture. I really applaud Spurgeon for that. My love of consistency in my own doctrine of views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater I would sooner a hundred times over appear to be inconsistent with myself than be inconsistent with the word of God. I never thought it to be any very great crime to seem to be inconsistent with myself. For who am I that I should everlastingly be inconsistent? But I do think it a great crime to be so inconsistent with the word of God that I would want to lop away a bow or even a twig from so much as a single tree of the forest of scripture. God forbid that I should cut or shape even the least degree any divine expression. So runs the text, and so we must read it. God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever to insert the concept of groups or kinds of people into the holy text. It clearly is saying, pray for all people, implying there is nobody you shouldn't be praying for even affirming and emphasizing that kinds of kings and people in power that persecute Christians fall under that all. By the way, that last bit was my own writing, okay? I was wondering why I highlighted that last paragraph. I thought it was because it was the best paragraph, but it was my, my, my writing. So there's absolutely not one single reason to insert groups or sorts of people there, especially when Paul is referring to even praying for kings that are persecuting the Christian church. He's talking about really sincerely loving and caring for and praying for all people. By the way, even if he was saying all sorts of people, by way of analogy, what if I said to you, you know what? We should pray that there would be equality under the law, that the rich and the middle of the class and the poor would all be treated equally under the law. Who would I be speaking about? Just certain people 
among the rich and the poor? I'd be speaking of who? Everyone. Amen? So even if he is speaking of all sorts of different groups of people, amen, doesn't mean that we, he doesn't desire the salvation of all of them. Are you with me? Amen. So, whew, I'm looking at the clock right now, and I'm just going to jump to a couple things by way of application. This is important for you guys to understand. You don't have to wonder or, whether or not Jesus loves you. Because you will go down the road. And if you're listening and you, and you get into theology and you study, you'll come across teachers that say, no, he doesn't really want all to be saved, just people from all sorts of classes. Or yeah, he wants all to be saved, but really he wants to damn most in his secret decree. And you might be part of a secret decree, hopefully not. Or, well, yeah, you know, he loves you, but he didn't necessarily die for you. Or, and if you open up the Calvinistic dictionary, you'll read the word all and it'll say, usually some. <laughs> you'll read, he wills that all would be saved. And you'll read, well, he doesn't will that all be saved. He wills that none would perish, you'll read in the Calvinist history. Oh, he does really will that most would perish. And, and you, you read God so loved the world, but really it means God so loved the elect or on and on and on. And that's what happens when you accept a body of theology instead of just go with God's word. That's why we don't call ourselves Calvinists or even Arminians. We call ourselves Biblicists, amen? amen. What does God's word say, Amen. So you need to apply this to your life. And how do you apply this to life? You accept the fact that you are radically loved by God and that he so loved you that he saved Paul to show you how he would accept you. Amen? And he even wants us to pray for wicked kings and leaders because he even loves them and that he gave himself a ransom for you. He died for you. Never have to doubt it. Amen? And then guess what? It also means you need to pray for everybody. Does that need, mean you need to get the phone book out and just start at A, you know, just work through it name by name? No. But what it does mean is you need to say, Father, you need to say, Father, please save the lost. Save those that don't know you, amen? Bring them to you. Bring the leaders to you. Bring presidents, those in authority to you. Use the language Paul used right there. But make sure you're doing that. And by the way, when you pray for the lost and people that you know are evil and even persecuted in the church, that'll help you appreciate God's love for you, Amen you'll also become more and more like Jesus, which is our goal. Because it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his will. It doesn't say we're everywhere, anywhere we're predestined to believe. It says we're predestined to be, believers were predestined to be conformed to the image of his will. I want to encourage you guys, in the name of Jesus, to pray and pray and pray because our country needs it more than ever right now. The world needs it more than ever, amen? And let's pray for leaders, and that will bless you so you can have a quiet life, live in all godliness, so you can be a witness to the non-believers, amen? For God wills that all be saved. Our Savior wills that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, amen? Can we all please stand?